Uh, thank you, Jim, for that uh, kind introduction. And um, uh, I, I have more to learn about children, I find, uh, as, as my children get older. My oldest is 14, and, and the learning curve starts to drop off quite steeply at this point, I've noticed. Uh, those of you who have had have teenagers or, or have had teenagers, I'm sure you can relate. I um, uh, want to also just piggyback briefly and quickly, Jim, on your uh, appeal about um, serving our, our young people. Uh, I teach, uh, I help coordinate the youth and family ministry program at Augsburg College where we prepare um, college-age students for service in the church. About a third of our students go on uh, to congregations to become youth workers or, or youth directors. Another third go on to seminary, and another third go on and usually serve, either they teach or do some sort of social ministry regarding youth. Um, so that's how, that's how our, our major breaks down. Um, and so as we, teach, we, as we teach these students, we teach the trends. And the trends right now are, are, are interesting and, from a Christian point of view, uh, troubling. And maybe you saw the Newsweek report about how Christianity is in decline in America and the recent census reports that say that uh, in the last 10 years, the percentage of people who report that they have no religion or that they're non, not religious uh, has jumped by 10%. And then the number of people who claim church membership has gone down by about that much as well. So this is a significant trend in our culture. And if, if we're a people who take seriously the Great Commission, we have to take seriously uh, that demographic, that population where the drop-off is most steep, and that's in the um, 18 to 30-year-old uh, age group. It's that group especially that is uh, dropping out of our churches um, in droves, and, and we need to do something about that. Well, I, again, thanks for the prayer, Lori, and um, it says here, pray, but that's been done. So, uh, thank you. I want to thank you all for being here. I know Friday nights are precious. They're precious in my house, so I want to thank you for taking uh, the time out to be here on this Friday night, and I want to thank Bethel Lutheran for hosting. You know, I'm looking around here thinking the last time I was here was in the 90s when I was a pastor in Lodi, and the time before that I was in the 80s, um, when I was an intern pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran in Los Altos with Jack Erickson, who some of you might remember. Uh, and the last, the time before that was when I was a youth uh, in, in, at Grace Lutheran Church in Palo Alto. And I think we had done a couple of, maybe at least one lock-in here. So I not only know the sanctuary, I know the closets and all the mixing. <laughs> so I think Tom Hogo was doing the sound for every one of those. Tom's not here tonight, but some maybe can text him and, say that I made fun of him tonight. Tom, Tom, Tom and I are friends on Facebook, so I can say that about, about Tom. Uh, and thanks to LBI and, and Jim for the invitation to be here. Um, I see that in the recent past you've had, uh, as Jim mentioned, some of my favorite people here, including uh, Jim Nestigan um, uh, and Rolf Jacobson. Most recently, Rolf is uh, the godfather of two of my kids. And um, it's clear that you have a preference for hanging out with sinners, and the good Lord would have it no other way. So thanks for numbering me among the sinners that you've invited here. Well, uh, you signed me up for four sessions on the theme, How Lutherans Read the Bible. Uh, I should go backwards a little bit. You can read it for yourselves. So what law, what's law and gospel uh, have to do with it? And so maybe you've been checking out this graphic that's sort of been subtly playing in the background here. We're going to explore that a little bit later tonight. Um, the way it's going to work is I'm going to make some introductory remarks and then we'll have a coffee break and then I'll finish up my uh, remarks and presentation and then we'll have some more time for, for question and answer. Actually, before I continue, I want to ask this. 
Um, tonight's going to be more of a, a, a formal presentation. You're certainly, uh, as Jim said, welcome to interrupt me with questions. Um, but it's, it's going to be more background. We're not going to have our noses in the scripture so much today. Um, it's more uh, talking about the scripture and especially how Luther and Lutherans have approached the scripture. But I do want to ask, uh, for those of you who are going to be here tomorrow, um, are you planning on bringing your Bibles? Okay, bring your Bibles tomorrow. We'll, we'll be, uh, be a little bit more give and take tomorrow uh, looking at the scripture, uh, having you open your Bibles. Uh, so be sure to do that tomorrow. Um, so you signed me up for, for the theme, um, How Lutherans Read the Bible, What's Law and Gospel Have to Do With It? And this image has been playing in the background, and maybe you can already guess um, the answer to the question, what's law and gospel have to do with it? As I said, we'll get there later. But at the beginning, I want to make two comments about this theme, um, uh, what Lutherans, uh, how Lutherans read the Bible and what's law and gospel got to do with it. First, the matter of how Lutherans read the Bible. Um, Obviously, I think, if you've been paying attention, um, the matter of how Lutherans read the Bible is not that simple. Um, it's not a simple matter at all. Uh, you already know this, right? You, if you're paying attention, you know the recent and ongoing controversies in the ELCA. Uh, how to read the Bible about ordination. That was the, kind of the first big controversy that I can remember uh, coming in, in the seminary. And the, that controversy led us to uh, the Concordat and CCM. Uh, controversies about ministry, and then most recently controversies about homosexuality as it relates to ministry and ordination. So you know, you know this matter of how Lutherans read the Bible is not a, a simple matter, uh, just from the recent controversies. And perhaps you also know about past controversies uh, that Lutherans have encountered regarding the Bible. Perhaps you recall 35 to 40 years ago, and now I'm starting to date myself. I would have been too young to remember this but I've read up on it, the controversy uh, that rocked the Missouri Synod, maybe you remember this, and led to uh, a split there. And the refugees of that split, many of the refugees of that split, uh, and ended up in what became the ELCA. Perhaps you remember the enduring controversy of 100 more years ago, or not. You probably don't remember that controversy. Uh, but if you do a little research, um, and, and look at what Lutherans were fighting about uh, from about 1870 to 1920, uh, you'll learn about how Lutherans had this big knockdown dragout drag-out about how to read the Bible on the subject of predestination. Uh, Fifty years, and we have people who have written the history of that particular controversy. Fifty years, that one dragged out in many different ways. Uh, the controversy rocked the immigrant churches, Norwegian, German, Swedish uh, churches that came to this country. Uh, like I said, especially beginning in the last third of the 1800s. And in a way, what you see in the way Lutheran, the Lutheran churches have shaken out in the United States today is the result of that controversy from more than 100 years ago. So in regard to the matter of how Lutherans read the Bible, here at the beginning, I'd like to offer a two-word comment. It's complicated. Not simple, it's complicated. Regarding the matter of how Lutherans read the Bible... Keep that in the back of your mind. It's complicated. The second part of our theme title, however, is what's law and gospel got to do with it. I keep on going a little bit too far. Uh, and here I want to offer a simple one-word response, and that is everything. What's law and gospel got to do with it? Everything. Everything, as we'll see. So put these in your brain. Let them serve as the backdrop for what we'll be doing tonight and continuing tomorrow. Regarding the matter of how Lutherans read the Bible, well, it's complicated. What's law and gospel got to do with it? Everything.
everything, to put it simply. So tonight, to set the stage, we're going to look at what Lutherans look for when they read the Bible. Traditionally, what do Lutherans look for when they read the Bible? And then tomorrow, we're going to apply what we look at tonight. We're going to apply what Lutherans look for when they read the Bible to certain long-standing controversies, long-standing controversies within Christianity. No, not ordination or ministry or homosexuality. Instead, tomorrow we'll look at some older, yet just as familiar controversies, I think, and we'll ask these two questions. What does the Bible say about baptism? And what does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper? How many of you have uh, ever had a conversation with someone in your family or your network of friends who might attend a church that does not baptize babies about baptism or about infant baptism? How many of you have had a conversation like that? All right, then. How many of you have had a conversation about um, about the Lord's Supper and about um, how you can believe something other than the fact that the bread and the wine are mere symbols of what Christ gave 2,000 years ago. How many of you have had that conversation? So not as many, right? The baptism one I've noticed is bigger and um, uh, the, the Lord's Supper one might not be as common. So these are the kind of controversies that go back a long way in Christianity and there's still no consensus among Christians on the the differences of opinion about baptism and the Lord's Supper and what the scripture says about it. So I thought we'd take what we learned today and apply them to those older controversies uh, and maybe we can apply what we learned to the intra-Lutheran controversies that we're experiencing uh, today. So um, that's what we're going to be doing uh, tomorrow. And tonight, basically what we'll be doing is setting the stage. Oh, and I should say one other thing. After lunch tomorrow, after we look at baptism in the Lord's Supper, uh, under this rubric of law and gospel, um, then we're going to come back from lunch and we'll finish up by looking at what I think is one of the most pressing and one of the most challenging questions facing many Lutherans these days, most of us, in fact, in fact, all Christians, and that is what does the Bible say about getting along with people who don't read the Bible the same way you do? What does the Bible say about getting along with people who don't read the Bible the same way you do? We'll look at that, and I think we'll be challenged. So that's the plan. Uh, Like I said along the way, and like Jim mentioned along the way, if you have questions, uh, feel free uh, to ask them. I'm sure you have lots to say as well, so I look forward to the conversation and to learning from all of you as well. So now for tonight's uh, subject, what to look for when you read the Bible. So you can keep glancing at this uh, picture and maybe uh, wonder, you know, what is going on here? What is this about? What to look for when you read the Bible? There are many ways to look for something in the Bible, if you haven't figured this out already. Maybe you've tried many different ways. One way to look for something in the Bible is best illustrated by an old story. Maybe you've heard this. An old story that goes like this. There was a man uh, who found himself in a bit of a fix. Over the years, he'd gotten away with a great deal of embezzling and stealing money and stockpiling the cash that he made. So with piles of cash, he found himself in a bit of a fix now with the law closing in, and he was looking for a way out, and he thought, I know, God's word. God will tell me how to get out of this mess I'm in. God will give me the answer. And so he got out a Bible. Right? You know maybe how this goes. He got out a Bible, and he prayed, And he said, uh, God, direct me to the right verse. And he opened the Bible, put down his finger, and landed in Matthew chapter 7. And the verse said, 
he returned the coins to the temple and went and hanged himself. (laughs) God, that can't be right. Show me another verse. So Bible open in a different place, a different place, finger down, and this time it was Luke 10, and it said, go and do likewise. And he said, that can't be right either. And so he opened the Bible again, finger down, this time Acts 22, why do you delay? So maybe you've heard that one before. That's called uh, uh, Bible surfing or um, Bible diving. Maybe some of you have tried this. As a, as a youth director, it's a great way actually to um, get kids interested in the Bible, you know, just open it up randomly and say, pick a page, pick a verse, read it, and we'll go from there, right? And you can land on some really interesting stuff sometimes. Sometimes some PG-13 rated stuff, in fact. So uh, it's a good way to get uh, um, young people especially interested in reading the Bible. Um, However, it's probably not a great way uh, to discern God's word in a serious and systematic way if that is what you're interested in. Still, I think the story is instructive for us. It reminds us that if you are looking for the Bible to tell you what to do, you will find it. If you are looking for the Bible to tell you what to do, you will find it. The Bible is full of rules and regulations, in case you haven't noticed. The Bible is full of rules and regulations, instructions and exhortations, commands and demands. They're all over. Law, it's all over. Not just Old Testament, New Testament as well. In fact, sometimes the New Testament is worse in terms of these exhortations and instructions and commands and demands, right? So we know that there's, if you're looking for something to do, there's all kinds of information in the scripture. Just as well, uh, in the Bible, you'll also find threats and warnings regarding the consequences and comeuppances awaiting those who break the law who transgress the boundaries, those who fall short of divine expectations, those who sin, you and I, in other words. If you're looking in the Bible for something to do or something for your neighbor to do, maybe, be careful because the Bible has plenty for you and for your neighbor to do. And the Bible has hell to pay if you don't. So that was uh, Luther's problem. There he is, when he was a young monk. Uh, That's one of the older illustrations we have of Luther. Um, This one dates from probably around 1520. Um, If you're a bit familiar with the later images of Luther, then you know he gets a big thicker in his later years, like many of us. Um, But in his younger years, I mean, look at him. He was fit and trim and pretty good looking, which explains, I think, why he was played by uh, the hunky actor Joseph Fine from Shakespeare in Love, uh, this is uh, fine in the Luther movie from 2003. How many of you have seen the Luther movie? It's, it's a, it's a well-done movie, very professionally done with you know, top-ranked act- actors. Um, uh, and, we're, and worth a look again if you want to review Luther's early years, because essentially the Luther movie is about Luther's early years. I think the last scene is from 1530. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, in the monastery, Brother Martin understood that loving God was about doing whatever you could do to make God happy. So Luther looked in the Bible to find out what kinds of thoughts, words, and deeds would please God. And of course, you know, he found plenty of rules and instructions. Everywhere Luther looked in the Bible, everywhere there was something else to do. 
Reading the Bible in this way, Luther would say, almost killed him. So years later, Luther uh, looked back at these early years and at his struggle with this impossible to please God and with a Bible that was full of one rule after another. And uh, this, is, this is what he said as he was looking back, and, and I'll read it for you, but you, the, these are quotes then from Luther himself as he's looking back at his early years. In fact, these, uh, this reminisce comes from 1545, so uh, within, the, within a year of his death, Luther's looking back 30 years earlier and remembering what it was like to be a monk and, and what his interpersonal spiritual struggle was about. Although I was a blameless monk, he said, I felt that before God I was a sinner, I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfactions. I did not love. No, rather, I hated. Listen to that. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, and here's Luther kind of quoting himself from 30 years ago, Isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by all kinds of disaster through the Ten Commandments. Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with more of his righteousness and wrath? Can you see what's going on there? Luther encountered the scripture and he encountered the theological traditions uh, that came out of the scripture that he read. And, And around every corner he saw law. First, we're born into sin, right? It's Adam and Eve's fault. Um, uh, we are born into this condition. We're automatically selfish. You know, I've never seen a selfless baby. You know, we come out of the womb and none of us go, you know, when we're one year old, well, mom, no, that's okay. I don't think I need to sleep now. Why don't you go take care of yourself? Or, right? We, we come out wanting and we need to be socialized to be aware of the other and to be aware that the other has needs. And yet, throughout life, we never quite get over our own me-firstness or selfishness. So Luther's looking at this, right? We're just born into this mess of sinfulness and there's no way out there. Then comes Moses and his Ten Commandments and it just exacerbates the problem, right? Uh, Moses, God comes down and gives Moses these laws, starting with, you shall have no other gods. God knowing full well that what we humans do best is have other gods. And then you get all these other laws and then all the other laws about the laws. And, and, and there's just a bunch of laws. You know, the whole Old Testament. Laws, laws, laws. Um, and, uh, and prophets uh, and kings are dealing with those laws. And uh, God meeting out his wrath when the laws are not met. Uh, including wrath that, that results in, in the, the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the banishment of the people out of the land that, that they would have been brought into, right? So Luther sees the problem with, with the old uh, covenant, the Ten Commandments, and he says it's just it's just it's just adding insult to injury, right? You see that there too in the middle part, and then and this is really interesting. He looks at the gospel, and he reads, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, and he reads where Jesus says, "You have heard it said, you shall not kill. Well, I say to you, if you call your brother a fool, then you're liable to judgment, right?" So Jesus, as a rabbi, commenting on the law. Interprets, it, interprets the law in a tenfold manner. And as Luther encounters Jesus as a Lord, he sees Jesus just that way, as a Lord, a difficult master, um, you know, standing over, uh, just waiting for the servant or slave to slip up. So this is how Luther experiences, as you see here, what he calls the gospel. He says it's just 
more of the same. Three strikes and you're out. How can I please a God like this? This is the problem that he experienced in his earlier years and that he's remembering here. Okay, uh, if you saw the movie, you know, uh, you remember, you know, he's looking for a right, for a merciful God and can't find him uh, because all he sees in the scriptures are, is law. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The righteousness of God is revealed in it, as it is written, the righteous live by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the justified person lives by a gift of God, that is, by faith. I began to understand that this verse is about the kind of righteousness by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. So all of a sudden, instead of this kind of righteousness, all right, sinners, when are you going to shape up, right? Now all of a sudden Luther sees God's righteousness in a different way, actively working through the crucified and risen one uh, to, to turn godless sinners into saints. It's God creating the righteousness, not awaiting the sinner to create the righteousness. So he has this realization, this aha moment, the so-called tower experience, uh, the breakthrough, and he describes that breakthrough like this. Interesting language he uses here. All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of scripture in a different light. It's a really interesting quote, an interesting reminisce 30 years after the fact. Read it again. Immediately upon being born again in this way, Luther saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. All of a sudden, it was like the lens changed. What was different? Well, he came to see that the Scripture contained laws, yes, but not only laws. Instead, he saw that the Scripture contained law and grace, or as Luther liked to put it, law and gospel together, together. And that in the end, Luther also realized that it is God's grace in Jesus Christ alone that accomplishes what the law cannot accomplish, and that is the redemption of sinners and even the resurrection of the dead. That's what grace and gospel do. And the law can't do any of those things, no matter how hard it tries, and no matter how hard you try to do that by the law. So now Luther was armed with something new to look for in the scriptures, not just law, but now he began to look for gospel as well. And what he found was gospel most of all. Interesting that a guy who could only see law after law after law, now understanding that God's righteousness worked in a more active way than a passive way, now began seeing gospel behind every door and around every corner. And Luther really did not have to look far, as he reports a little bit later in this reminisce. Uh, the first place he went to was uh, in the, the Gospel of John, uh, which was his uh, favorite gospel in the end. And he saw there the very beginning of, uh, of, of John, in John chapter 1, right? You know how John starts? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, a little bit further down, uh, verse 17, uh, there's this word, verse. For indeed, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So you've got Moses and his law, and you've got 
grace and truth through Jesus Christ. It's right there in a single verse of the Bible, this difference between law and gospel, this distinction. Luther came to believe that the best way for Christians to read the Bible was to look for words of law and for words of grace or gospel and to be able to tell the difference between the two. In fact, telling the difference between law and gospel was the key to reading scriptures correctly, according to Luther. Law and gospel. So you look for them. They're there. Uh, you, you look for where they are. You name them for what they are. And you let them sit there together and see what the Holy Spirit does through that, uh, through that distinct, distinction of law and gospel. And then furthermore, looking for law and gospel uh, in the scripture um, was not only the business of pastors and theologians. Uh, Luther asserted often that this was everybody's business. Everybody should look for law and gospel. I've got one more quote for you. Let every Christian, every Christian, learn diligently to distinguish between law and the gospel. In fact, if you want to be a true theologian, Luther said, this is all really that you have to do, is learn to tell the difference between law and gospel, gospel and law. So it's that easy. Well, tomorrow we're going to see it's really... Not that easy. It takes some practice. Uh, this distinguishing of law and gospel and seeing what God does uh, through those two words of law and gospel. But we'll, we'll give it a shot tomorrow and uh, see what we, can, what we can learn. What does it look like, uh, this distinguishing law-gospel business? Um, Luther lays it out for us in a little writing called What to Look For and Expect in the Gospels. And did that get handed out? Yes, good, okay. I forgot to ask about that. Um, uh, Luther wrote this little guidebook while he was working on a German translation of the New Testament in 1521. So this is really early in his Reformation career. In fact, uh, if you saw the Luther movie, then you know after the here I stand moment at the Diet of Worms, Luther is kidnapped by his prince and sort of um, secreted away to his, one of his prince's castles um, um, his prince had many castles and he was secreted away to one of those castles and uh, he didn't have anything to do. And so it's amazing what he produced during the 10 months that he, was, uh, that he spent in hiding after the Diet of Worms. Uh, if I think about what he did in 10 months and what I do in 10 months, I just get really depressed. Um, uh, massive amounts of correspondence, uh, lots of little tracts like the one you have in front of you, and uh, while he was at it, uh, he translated the entire New Testament and some books of the Old Testament from the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, into German. <laughs> uh, you know, we're talking about uh, a genius-level person here. Uh, so what you have in your hands is one of these little tracts that he wrote um, it, there in the Wartburg Castle while he was in hiding. And while he was in the process of translating the scripture, which he knew by heart in Latin and now had learned in Greek and Hebrew, and now was translating into German so that everybody could read it. Um, we're not going to read the, uh, the entire thing. Um, uh, I'll let you read the whole thing on your own. It, and it is worth reading, I think, uh, if you want an insight into uh, Luther as he's kind of um, developing this new breakthrough or this new way of reading scripture, which, which to him and I would say to most people of his day was new. Uh, but I only I, I want to highlight one key passage for you here tonight. So if you turn flip to page three, just flip over one page, 
And for those of you who don't have the handout, I've got the text that we're looking at up here. So uh, Luther is, um, you know, the title of this thing is What to Look for and Expect uh, in the Gospels. But just before this section, he's talking about how um, the gospel is in the end God's word and God's word and gospel are to be found everywhere in the scripture. So the Apostle Paul's letters are to be considered gospel. Um, uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews and Revelation is to be considered gospel. The law and the prophets is to be considered gospel because there too you have the promises, not only the laws, but the promises of God as well. So uh, even though it's called what to look for and expect in the gospel, he's already qualified and said the whole thing is gospel, the whole Bible, right? Be sure, moreover, and now we're reading, that you do not make Christ into a Moses. So there you see, again, the split between Jesus and Moses, right? Moses is a lawgiver. Jesus is something different. Do not make Christ into a Moses, as if Christ did nothing more than teach and provide examples as other saints do, as if the gospel were simply a textbook of teachings or laws. Therefore, you should grasp Christ, his words, works, and sufferings in a twofold manner. So here again, he's going to say, it's not quite honest to say Moses is all about law and Jesus is all about gospel or promise. He's saying you can still find law and gospel in Christ himself. Okay, uh, grasp hold of Christ in this twofold manner. First, as an example that is presented to you, which you should follow and imitate. Good luck with that. <laughs> as St. Peter says in 1 first, in first, in first Peter 4, Christ suffered for us, thereby leaving us an example. That's when you see how he prays, fasts, helps people, and shows them love. So also you should do both for yourself and for your neighbor. Right? So he sees Christ still as someone where you can find guidance, exhortation, rule, regulation, law, but of a different sort. Then he goes on to say, however, this is the smallest part of the gospel, looking at Jesus as an example. That's how he understood Jesus in his monk years. Um, Jesus was only an example, otherwise not much help. Now he's saying this is the smallest part of understanding Jesus, of looking at Jesus, of reading Jesus. This is the smallest part of the gospel, on the basis of which it cannot yet even be called a gospel. So if you're just looking at Christ as an example, as many people do, um, Luther's asserting that it's not a gospel then. On this level, Christ is of no more help to you than some other saint. His life remains his own and does not as yet contribute anything to you. In short, this mode of understanding Christ is simply an example, does not make Christians, but only hypocrites. Why? Because you can say Jesus is my example all you want, but you will always fall short and therefore always seem hypocritical. Instead, or next, or primarily, you must grasp Christ at a much higher level. Even though this higher level has for a long time been the very best, the preaching of it has been something rare. The chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize him as a gift, as a present that God has given you and that is your own. And then you can go on and read, but I'm going to ask you to put it down now so we can finish up our business here. Right? So, Jesus is an example, all fine and good, but you start with just taking Christ in faith and taking everything that he gives you in faith, right? 
um, uh, you take his blessedness, you take his innocence, you take his righteousness, you take his life. And as Luther would later on go, to, uh, go, go on to explain later on, uh, that this in a way is an exchange. Not only do you take all these things in faith from Christ, innocence, blessedness, righteousness, life, but you give him all your own stuff, your own muck. You give Christ your cursedness, your guilt, your sin, even your death. And he would call this the happy exchange. That's what it is to take Christ in faith. Forget about Jesus' example for now. That can come later. But first and primarily, the way we look for Christ and the way we look for gospel is by what's given to us, by what God is giving to us, especially in Jesus Christ. And then, one of the results or outcomes of that will be, wow, I wonder how I can live my life now. Uh, under the leadership of this uh, blessed Savior. And then you can start considering Christ as your example. That's the thinking here. Any questions or responses about that? I'll keep going. So this law gospel way of looking at scriptures, um, I think I can confidently say is what's come to be considered the Lutheran approach. Although I find that as I go around to many churches and talk about this, People say, this is the first time I've heard of this, um, which is a, a little bit of an indictment on our preaching and teaching, I suppose. Um, but you're hearing it now, and so let's see how, how far we can get onto it. This is the Lutheran approach. This is, I think, what Lutherans still can contribute to the Christian conversation uh, today. We have this particular way of reading, reading Scripture. Uh, uh, our namesake, Martin Luther, uh, has given us this insight, which we can uh, take and run with. And so let's try and do a little bit of that. Um, This law-gospel distinction has become so central to the Lutheran movement that, at least in the early years, it was used to illustrate the German Bibles being published by those early Lutherans. Oh, I didn't skip the slide, did I? So those of you who are hoping you would see the rest of that quote didn't get to see it. All right. So remember that black-and-white illustration that we had at the beginning? Um, versions of that illustration found themselves on the covers of some of these early Lutheran Bibles, these early German Bibles. Um, uh, so they're, uh, just like in the earlier illustration, which we're going to look at in a second, or after the break, uh, you see it here this time on the Bible with a tree running down the middle and different scenes being depicted on the right and on the left. Um, this is the uh, original cover. There's some fancy German there basically says, Bible, this is the entire Holy Scripture in German, newly translated in German by Dr. Martin Luther and blessed by the imprimatur of the prince. Printed in Wittenberg. Who can read the Roman numeral date there? 1541. 1541. Well, as you're looking at this, you might be thinking, what are these images about? What's going on here? So you see that one. Uh, the, the one there on the left-hand side. That's a familiar scene. What are you looking at? All right, just making sure that you know your Bible stories. How about this one? Hmm. All right, we got some people who know this one. We'll get back to that one. Want to take a guess at this one? It's a woman. You guys figured that out. She's looking up. Anyone want to guess which woman that is? Nope. 
Nope. Nope. You're not supposed to know automatically. I mean, she doesn't have a name tag on. Um, it's Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. We'll get to that. And what's going on in this one? It's a little bit hard to see. You know, they tried to crowd all these pictures and they use woodcut uh, in this image. The artist used woodcut uh, to create this image, right? You cut out, right? you know how a woodcut works? It works like a little stamp. You, you cut out the stamp and wood and put ink on it and you print it down. That's how this was made. What's going on there? That one, of course, you recognize. Well, that's hard to see what's going on there. So we might have to look at another image. This is looks like something from a, a horror movie. Um, and if you look closely, um, there's a guy holding two tablets. There's watching over the whole scene. So we're going to have to figure out what that's about. And then, of course, running down the middle is this uh, interesting tree. Uh, looks like it's fall on one side and spring on the other. So what's going on here? Well, we'll have to, we'll have to look and, and consider these different images and how they work together to create not only a single narrative, but also a guideline for you in looking for law and gospel as you read scripture. So... Uh, we'll, we'll just say a word about the, the illustrator here. How many of you know Lucas Cronach? All right. Um, we're, gonna, we're about to break for uh, a, a few minutes here. When we come back, we'll look at all those images in a, in a slightly more clear form and just kind of take them one by one and look at, at how they relate to Scripture. Uh, but the, the artist uh, who's, who gave us the cover of that Bible and who gave, gave us the image that you were looking at the, at the very beginning uh, was Luther's neighbor, uh, Lucas Cronach Sr., and, or the elder as he's known. And uh, that's a self-portrait of him from uh, 1550, I want to say, five years after Luther died. Uh, Cronach lived down the street from Luther there in Wittenberg. You can still see the Cronach house today. Um, uh, it's amazing the output from Cronach. I think he's sort of one of the unsung heroes of the German Reformation, um, but certainly very famous in his day. His output, like Luther's, was uh, incredible. Another nice little tidbit about Cronach. Um, when 11 es- or nine escaped nuns made it to Wittenberg, uh, in April of 1523, one of them was Katrina von Bora, and uh, Katrina's first job was to be uh, a maid in Cronach's house. And um, if you were wondering how did Luther meet his wife, most likely it was Luther just coming down and visiting the Cronach home and getting to know Katie a little bit informally that way. So Cronach is very connected, and we'll look at one of his uh, lesser-known works, but key work for us, uh, in understanding law and gospel when we're done with our little break. Yes, Jim. You showed a picture uh, Luther's first Bible uh, in, in, in German. Was that ever um, translated and available in English? Um, I tried to find the, it. The, what you saw was a 1541 edition of Luther's German Bible. Um, um, had I not flown on a plane today, I would have taken a 1536 edition I have, which is two volumes. It's about this thick, and it's got Cronach illustrations all throughout. It's just incredible, in color, and it's an exact replica of the 1536 Luther Bible. It's just gorgeous. And, of course, uh, if you were to buy it in 1536, uh, it would have cost the ab- average laborer three years' wages. Um, so it's just a gem, and it cost me 99 bucks, and it was well worth it. Um, uh, bought it in Germany. But these are translations, of course, that Luther made from Greek and Hebrew, kind of bypassing the Latin and improving on the Latin, as it were, and making the scriptures available in the native German. 
and in a way sort of establishing um, the, the German language in print for the very first time and kind of unifying it. Um, so Luther is, in a, among German linguists, he's credited with um, inventing modern German in a way or establishing modern German. Um, but I know, of no, I know of no single attempt to translate the Bible from Luther's translation of the original languages. Um, so I, 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 I don't know of one. Um, I know, I know there are studies where people have looked at certain parts of his translation and said, well, isn't it interesting how he translated these terms this way in German? But there's no single place where you can get the whole thing in English. Yeah. Any other questions? What do I have to tell people about our little coffee break here? Except that, what time is it now? Okay, is there a bell that we can ring or something? Yeah, we should take a little uh, if we, uh, you know, I have a little bit more presentation to do, maybe 15 minutes, and then we can have some question and answer. So what if we go at, uh, if we come back at 20 after 8, that'll give us 13 minutes. Okay. This is Friday the 13th. We've got 13 minutes. All right. <laughs>